Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's Thursday, and it's time to welcome you to Waypoints, where the Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment that's been inspiring and provoking us lately. Gathered around the table this Thursday, we've got Daniel Riendo. Hi, hello. Austin Walker. Hey. Natalie Watson. Hello, hi. And we're also <laughs> joined by our colleague, Noisy, Colin Joyce. Hello. It's good to be here. Good to have you. <laughs> Uh, oh, shall I, just, shall sorry, I just jump in with I it? I, I, a... I have some important yeah. news. <laughs> it's fine. Okay. okay, sorry. We were, to be clear, we were all kind of wrapped by a piece of new news, a number of pieces of new news, some of which we will not talk about here. This isn't well, libelous, which, right? Or slanderous. I guess it's a podcast. Well, well, I guess this isn't new news. It's a new fact. I'm going to start lives. just by reading from the... Uh, a second paragraph of Trader Joe's Wikipedia page. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, that okay. means it's safe and true. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. That's what I. That's what I've heard. Yeah. As a journalist, Trader know. Joe's was founded by Joe Columbe in 1967. Starting in 1979, it was owned by German entrepreneur Theo Albrecht, a former soldier for the Nazi German army, until what? his death in 2010, when ownership passed to his heirs. Trader Joe's owned by a Nazi soldier until 2010. That's a long time. I was shopping there before. I know I was. Trader Joe's has great exclusives. No. No, we draw the line at shopping at Nazi stores. Wait, hold on. We actually need to know, like, okay, was this guy, like, in the SS? Or was he, like, a guy conscripted in 1944 to go, like, I don't know, just stand in a trench while Russian tanks roll over it? Like, that's that's worth asking. I don't know how deep we want to go into this, but I did do a lot of Googling about this yesterday when I discovered it. (laughs) Again, a journalist. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Google, where, where all the news lives. <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately. Sad. Um, so I was Googling because Aldi came up. You know Aldi, the supermarket yeah. chain? Uh, and I was like, aren't Trader Joe's and Aldi owned by the same company? And the answer is sort of. Um, <laughs> they, they were owned by a pair of brothers, both of whom fought for oh, Nazi my. Germany. Uh, what? They, they split... Aldi split into two companies in the 1960s when there was a dispute over selling cigarettes at Aldi. Um, Aldi said no or said yes? Uh, they, well, some Aldis what? do and some don't. So they split oh. into Aldi Nord and Aldi Sud at that point. The brothers had a falling out. More brothers? Over cigarettes. Over cigarettes. Okay. Good on the Nazism. Wow. Well, yeah, I mean, Shaky shared on history. cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So that, at least that's what I understand to be true. Um, Nationalism, not, not not Nazism. That's not how we say that. Anyway, continue. Uh, correcting myself. In uh, in the seventies, one of the brothers bought Trader Joe's, um, and the uh, and he that brother is not the one that operates Aldi in the states. 
So one brother operates Trader, operated Trader Joe's in the States, and the other one operated all, the, all these stores in the States. Very strange. But they were both soldiers. Yeah. One, and so one of them, from what I can gather, okay, so they also were very private people. There's not a lot of, like, reporting about I them. I would be too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. You know, I'm just going to add one thing, and we can move on to waypoints. This is from Yelp. Joseph M., uh, there's a there's a, a thread here. Uh Trader Joe's owned by a Nazi? And Joseph M. says, it's true. Trader Joe's is really owned by the 20th richest person in the world, a former soldier in the Nazi army, Theo Albrecht. Uh, he and his brother brought the Monrovia-based retailer in 1977, way before its major expansion in the U.S. And then Mr. Yelpitude responds, actually, what's worse are the employees. They are worse <laughs> no. than the overly exuberant Starbucks staffers. No. Wow. This Yelper's account has been closed. <laughs> okay, hold on, though. Mr. Like, this... Yelpitude. All right. I got a well actually this. The oh, dude no. The dude was a teenager when the war starts in 39 and he was conscripted into the Wehrmacht. He didn't volunteer. He wasn't some like there's nothing here that says like he was some Hitler Jugend sack of shit. Like <laughs> but guy, we don't know. That's the thing. He he died without explaining it. Well, I mean if you're drafted you probably weren't uh you know what I mean? Like that's that's the thing is it makes me He wasn't he wasn't bit. like he wasn't a pilot, you're saying? He wasn't someone who was, like, kissing the ring? Right. Like, we don't, like, there, there's a, there's enough here in his bio and his obituaries about the guy to suggest that, like, I don't know, I don't know what the guy actually got up to. I don't know what his beliefs were before the war, but he was drafted, and he went to serve in the Africa Corps and surrendered there, uh, apparently. So, you know. What, mm. what I'm hearing is Trader Joe did nothing wrong. <laughs> that is also what I'm hearing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. An honorable right. store. Sorry for this. We have to get serving, this out, out of our systems. Otherwise, it would just be T-R-A-I-T. gnawing. T-R-A-I-T. Traitor. Traitor, Traitor Joe. Traitor Joe. Right. Wow. Yo, fuck Joe. <laughs> wow. Okay. It's all out there now. We all know how we feel about Traitor Joe. <laughs> Okay. We wish he would have been a traitor is the actual thing. I yeah. would have, that would have been – because the supermarket started by someone who betrayed the Nazis. That's cool. Way easier to shop there. Yeah. So, <laughs> Catch me there anytime. I'm eating those cookies. <laughs> yeah. I'm eating those Joe-O's. <laughs> Joe-Jo's. Anytime. <sighs> what is this podcast really about, Rob? What did you say at the top? Uh, culture? Yeah, culture. Out? Uh, things that have been, we found inspiring. Uh, I guess we could say Trader Joe's was provoking. uh, Yeah. Uh, But, yeah, so I guess we'll just dive into this uh, right right from the start. So this week, Natalie, uh, for your waypoint, you've been listening to Lil Peep's Come Over When You're Sober Part 2. I have. As many listeners will know, this is a posthumous album uh, from the artist put together from material he'd been working on at the time of his passing. Uh, Natalie, before we dig into this album, can you set the stage a little bit? I think we've all gotten pretty cynical, justly so, by the way, about like posthumous albums popping up after an artist's passing and the way that is often bound up with like exploitation uh, of an artist and, and their popularity. Uh, but what, what should we make of Come Over When You're Sober? Uh, who was Lil Peep? And what, what are the things to bear in mind as we consider this, this work? Yeah, I just want to say first that I invited Colin over here because Colin wrote this excellent article um, for Noisy uh, titled Little Peep's First Posthumous Album is Haunted by What Could Have Been, which uh, summarized or just it spoke to so many of the things that I was working through. I was like 
listening to that album. Um, so I thank you greatly <laughs> for this piece of writing. It was definitely good for me to work through writing it. I, there's so much to think about. about. Yeah. Um, I guess I kind of wanted to start with what your... I, I guess I'll exp- first explain who Little Peep was, and then I'll go into like what draws you to to writing about him and and Austin to you listening to him and then Danielle maybe like what Danielle and Rob what kind of questions or what thoughts since you two were like not previously exposed to Little Peep as much um what kind of things came across for you um Little Peep uh was originally from Long Island and moved he was born Gustav or or That's yeah, A-H-R I, with the funny circle above the A. Yes, <laughs> he had. Um, I think his father father was fodder. Wow, <laughs> he's Swedish. That's yeah. I was just speaking Swedish. Just <laughs> <in>. <laughs> um, his father was Swedish, um, who was uh, largely absent from his life. But um, he moved to from Long Island to LA when he was like seventeen to pursue music. And uh, goes by the or went by the moniker Lil Peep. He is largely credited with sort of or a lot of the headlines that came out around him uh, when he was uh, still making music was like, is this the revival of emo? Um, he's known for taking like alternative guitar riffs and mixing them with like trap beats and creating this like sort of genre of emo or if not creating like refining this genre of emo rap and or as he called it like alternative hip-hop um he um and unfortunately he passed away uh two years ago now last year last it might have been this like year. a year ago or it was a year like ago, now? A, year ago fall, right? a year ago like the day this podcast comes out i think really oh really wow. but i'm pretty sure Wow. I'm pretty Wild. sure. It was definitely like mid-November of last year. Okay. I definitely remember that day because it was the first yeah. time I was exposed to him and you were sitting Wait, yeah, it's tomorrow. Room. That's yeah, really tomorrow. sad. Yeah, it is gonna be, going to be, yeah. yeah. Shout outs, Lil Peep. Yeah. Lil Peep's family. Obviously, RIP. Yeah, you came in, Danielle. I walked and in and me you were like, like super upset. You're like listening to the song. Like I was, I was fucked up. It's wild because like Colin, yeah. you're the one who put me on to Lil Peep. Actually, by way of... So you said that one of the things that made Peep uh, uh, that was like notable about Peep's music was a lot of samples of like acoustic guitar stuff, yeah. alternative and indie, um, um, like '90s and early 2000s independent music. And literally, the I am t- to me from you in twenty in November seventh, twenty sixteen. So two years ago. Two years ago Jesus. was quote. This was also the first time you'd ever actually IM me on our internal IM thing. Have you heard the white rapper that samples the microphones yet? (laughs) And I said, I have not. And you said, I am not sure that I recommend it per se, but I am fascinated. This is your guy. And you linked me to a to a review of of white wine. Mm -hmm. Um, And you said, maybe fascinated isn't the right word either. This definitely exists. Let's go with that. And then I go, oh, boy, I hate that I like this sample. I hate it. I'm a bad person. (laughs) And you say, this is exactly where I'm at. Fuck. Uh, And then I go, I might put this on repeat. I feel like past me is very disappointed in me. Um, and recapping old IMs is like I, really horrifying. Well, so the thing that happens I? is like over the course of the next 
few days, like we transform from people who are like skeptical of Peep to someone who is to people who are like, you're like going to see him live. You're like, I'm so excited to go see him live. I'm going to get to interview him. And you come back from that experience being converted in a sense, or at least convinced that this is not a gimmick and that this is not, uh, that there is there there. You know? Yeah, for sure. I actually, so I got the assignment because I tweeted something to the same effect. Like basically <laughs> like, like my like gut reaction to what he's doing is to hate it because I, I mean, he samples the microphones, but he also samples stuff like Pierce the Veil and mm-hmm. Flyleaf, like mm-hmm. stuff that I don't hold a lot of fondness for yeah. at this point in my life. Um, no yeah. offense, Natalie, you're giving me a little <laughs> No, it's funny because huh. like that was extremely like I've had two major phases of music I would say and the first one was like like emo pop punk like very scene sort of like the music that he's like the 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 lesser music that he's like sampling like that like sure and that was his upbringing yeah, too like yeah. I mean, growing up on Long Island that's like that was like the thing at that Oh yeah. As someone who's in college on Long Island when he was growing up on Long Island, yes, like that was absolutely <laughs> the scene there. Yeah. Um and it that definitely comes through and Long Island definitely comes through not just in his music but also in his like his style, the way he speaks and especially in his music videos. Um, yeah. Like, I can't I think that there's so much to be said about Peep's music, but as much as to be said about like what that dude did via the videos that that he was in often with other artists, but like so many of his early videos are just like him fucking around in Long Island, right? You know, <laughs> with like uh, a faux, like hand handy cam style, <laughs> like camcorder, uh, uh, you know, style to the to the aesthetic to the to the mm-hmm. videos, um, and that all does feel so suburban and so like, you know, what's the there's like a there's a. It's so small. Like I think we think about like when I think about this album, and I, and I think about the expectations of this album, and I think about what if you go back and read some of the obituaries written about Peep or some of the pieces that happened after he died. Yeah. Um, there is a sort of there is an epic quality associated with him, a sort of like ah, but you know, if if not for this, he would have had the world at his fingertips, and he could have. She was shifting everything. I'm yeah, not it was away it, from like that. they. A lot of them talk about like uh, his like. Uh, uh, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, his uh, like endeavors into like right. fashion sure. and like yeah. doing and like these like larger than life things, like creating this like low peep brand. Right. And I'm saying he wasn't working in those spaces, but I think that uh, there's a a risk of overshadowing the mundanity of much of his early music, especially right DIY. Like yes. not not just like not as a, like a philosophy, but but like just that's all there was. There, yeah. there was no ambition beyond that. Well, but I think that. Oh, go ahead, Rob. Sorry, and the question I was going to ask is, does Come Over When You're Sober Part 2 play into that sort of posthumous narrativization of his life and what his arc would have been? Like, I'm coming into this with no investment in this prior, but uh, one of the things you mentioned uh, in your article about, about the album, and certainly when I went back and I listened to some tracks that Natalie forwarded to me from his work previous to this, yeah, I should say that I had them listen to uh, White Wine, Ben's Truck, Beamer, uh, Boy? Beamer Boy, and Save That Shit Save, for yes. like context before totally. Come Over When You're Sober. Person. It was a hard, it was a council. Yeah. Natalie and I took a council. <laughs> <Austin> <laughs> and I, we, came with, we came with different things and we had to pick what we, we overlapped. Yeah. But I was struck by how completely different the music from this last work sounds from previous work. And part of that is 
so th- there was a lot written about there was a in- long interview with his producer uh, Smokesack Dylan Mullen uh, over at Complex talking about how he finally had a chance he had the he had access to like more raw material than he'd ever had uh, from from Peeps from Peeps work and he's able to produce a much cleaner and epic sounding album like I'm listening to this it sounds really fucking good but it also sounds like a very produced album. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of wondering is, is is this final album is Come Over When You're Sober Part Two, also kind of an effort to sketch out a what would have been character arc for Peep. I I think that it it is in ways that are both cynical and not mm-hmm. <laughs> because yeah I think he was already I I mentioned this in the piece I think he was already on that that arc mm. like if you listen to Come Over When You're Sober Part One it's just so much more of a pop record than, 100%. than anything that he'd done before like Ben's truck being an example of that I think that it's just clean and, and uh, so much of his previous stuff was these like really gnarly like distorted samples and stuff like that often that had one verse right. maybe and sometimes not even by him right like I think I, for for me so what's funny is I think we came into peep uh, as listeners Colin you and I and I don't know when you came in Natalie but when he was in the middle of this incredibly creative period with contributors or with other with features, mm-hmm. um, partially with other people like Horsehead, but also a lot with Little Tracy, um, whose name now just I think now just Tracy. I think I'm, it, it's it's it, it's hard to check say. his Twitter. He yeah. changed his Twitter. Um, my a lot of my favorite Peep songs are actually Peep and Tracy songs, either Tracy songs featuring Peep or mostly Peep songs featuring Tracy, in which Peep does the hook and Tracy does the verse, and then it'll often be like. Hook, verse, hook, out. 90 seconds. Yeah. Short songs. Like here's the, here's the skeleton of a song that by the time you get to come over when you're sober part one, those are three and a half minute songs with two or three peep verses on them. And like they've been and, – and have a lot of the rough edges have been sanded down so you could imagine it hitting radio and doing really well. And it should – it felt yeah. like that record should That have. record especially. Like Awful Things from that record is one of his I think just like flat out just best songs. Whether it's like – the most peep song or not like mm-hmm. it, it just it's it's this massive thing that and uh there's video of good charlotte covering it yeah i watched that at his memorial service um and I, so i think that i think that a lot of people like reasonably expected that that's what was going to keep happening mm-hmm. for him that he was just going to write more epics and i was re-listening to this um new york times podcast that was recorded uh right after his death with he uh john Carmonica interviewed a few of Peep's close, like, media friends, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of them was, like, uh, seeing the crowd gathered for his memorial was just, like, devastating because that is the crowd that Peep deserved, but it should have been in a stadium and not in an L.A. park, like, mourning him. Yeah. So in some ways, I think that this record does... It's it it is like projecting that a little bit, but it it's the headspace he was already in. Uh, all the vocals for this were recorded at the same time as "Come Over When You're Sober" part mm-hmm. one. Can you explain how this worked? Because this is so interesting to me because it goes against so many other musicians, and especially in like the hip hop space, and even in the emo space. That I the way I understand song composition, or the way I default to thinking about song composition. Right. 
Can you explain like what that yeah, was? Yeah, so you, you explained it to me the other day, and it was just like, oh, what? Okay. So, so what it sounds like from both the complex story that Rob mentioned, and um, there's a New York Times piece that also goes into the making of this record. It sounds like Peep was always like home recording, just all the time, mm-hmm. um, and because that's how he started. So he was working with either reference tracks or even just to a metronome or something, and, or like very bare bones demos, and recording all of his vocals. Um, and then his producers would come in and work after the fact and like build out the beat from there. So he had he had all these melodies and like like stacked harmonies and stuff like that. And um, the, I think the thing that Rob was gesturing to was the, in the complex story, Smokasack mentions how um, how it was the first time he had access to his separated out vocal stems, meaning like yeah. like this he would sing it over and over again, both to. Uh, sing harmonies and also just to give it this huge sound um, and in the past it's from what it seems like in the article this isn't like explored as much as I would like um, he he was giving those vocals as like just like one file like right. he was deciding the mix of like what it sounded like yeah. and now this time Smoke Sack was making that call which I mean it probably sounds like objectively better because of that but it there's no way of knowing if those are the, if the decision to make it sound objectively better is what people would have decided. Right. Yeah. Which is weird. Yeah, I mean, There's like, a moment where you... Oh, sorry. No, go for it. I was going to say, there's a moment where you describe, or, or uh, I, know, I remember reading a lot of this stuff. He described, like, feeling like Peep was, like, there with him. Like, yeah. standing over his shoulder, kind of saying, like, all right, that one or not that one. And then it, it, that kind of obviously contradicts with like the idea of okay nobody can ever actually know that right like right. he it's his interpretation of what people would have wanted and that's never going to be like a perfect one to one yeah right? and by all considerations they were extremely close like that yeah. like mm-hmm. they were like more or less best friends so if anyone is going to do this job it's going to be him but there's just like there's no way to, right. to actually do it that's yeah. the that's the thing that I kept coming back to <laughs> yeah yeah, I mean, it, it's and it really is striking, like going from listening to that earlier work, which is all uh, super compressed. Uh, it's it's kind of like almost wall of soundish. Uh, there's not mm-hmm. there's not a huge open soundstage that you're hearing. It's all very like in your face, and then you you, should, to this. you can even just look at the waveforms on SoundCloud and see that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and then you listen yeah. to this last album, and like everything is separated out beautifully. There's a huge, there's a huge like soundstage, like that was from left to right. It's a very producer's album, and like this is where it gets, it gets interesting. Like I have no doubt that the people involved were going about this with the absolute best of intentions. Like it sounds like mm-hmm. everyone involved in this album deeply cared about admired and loved people like his 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 mother was like a key figure in like putting this album mm-hmm. together as well and and they had a great relationship like that was yeah, like, that was something clear. i wanted to ask yeah 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 because yeah, yeah. that that seemed to come through in the piece and the complex piece but like yeah like there I, are, because there i don't know him that well you know his his music the first that well it was like he got okay was yeah was, of his it was when he was 14 and it's his mom's initials and her birthday oh, and he got yeah. that so that she couldn't be mad at him but like <laughs> yeah. in every interview you watch of like lil peep talking about like uh like tour life or talking just he always like talks about his mom and how much like he loves and he like calls her every day and stuff oh. like they were like very very close he she got like gave him the nickname peep because she would call him like a peep or something like a she would and and so that's like what was 
like they were they were very close. They There's this a... amazing story he told me about. So he dropped out of high school and finished. He ended up finishing online. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said that he never really actually did any of his work. Just his mom would do all of it for him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like his mom like wrote all the essays yeah. or something. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that adds up. <laughs> <laughs> Um, he was listening. He was busy writing uh, uh, incredible emo hip hop music. You know? Absolutely. Apparently. Absolutely. So, um, but wait, really quick. There's a specific thing here that I think Natalie called out yeah. that builds on what you just said, Rob, which is or this whole conversation around you know what would have this album sounded like? It's impossible to know in some senses. But what you can track is a change in. Um, in in style, uh, in direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the, the track that you pull out is Life is Beautiful, mm-hmm. which previously had been released as just Life with a different beat. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there are such different songs. And I think the Life is Beautiful on the album is like such a pop, ma- like perfect pop song like that is that completely summarizes the direction he was headed in yeah. since Come Over When You're Sober Part 1. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really listenable. It has like uh, the 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 um, the beat doesn't really get in the way. It isn't. It is like a very framed song where you're able to like understand the lyrics and like work through exactly what he's saying. Yeah, original... but also like digest the lyrics in a way that's like a little bit easier because oh, he's I think about brutality here. He... Oh, he's talking about true love here. He's talking about like it's super easy to like yeah to follow along. Yeah, but I feel like that that almost having that sort of like like very clean like beautiful melody like backing those like very like hardcore and hard to listen to lyrics like almost makes that a little bit easier to digest because i think like when you listen to some to the earlier stuff like how grading everything is in like in for me like the best of ways like it it can be hard like that's not going to be a hit you know what i mean like if you're having like these like overwhelming lyrics and like overwhelming like sound it's like i will also say like that original life beat is extremely like chill beats to to study to (laughs) yeah no i just mean in like like, in terms of like his earlier stuff in general totally i'm saying just for this one song and and for me the thing that's interesting is like i think part of me still likes that earlier version better Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways even though it is not like ready for the prime time in the way that the album releases. Totally. I mean, I I think it's just how I'm oriented as a listener. Like the the like gnarlier stuff where you have to work for the spark. Mm-hmm. Like that is mm-hmm. always what I'm going to be drawn toward, but I mean, people want it to be famous on some level. Right? Yeah. Like, totally. So I think, go for it. <laughs> I mean, I think that he like when you said what you just said about the the sort of crowd for his memorial being like the crowd that he deserved like I feel like this album is an attempt to achieve that crowd like even if it is like through like radio listens or something like that like it's unfortunate that the song with X is a song that's like has the most fucking listens you would explain briefly why that or like why that fucking sucks Um, yeah so extension is another rapper who um, Lil Peep. Basically, the story as I understand it, it for God. So the story as I understand. <laughs> exactly, I agree. <laughs> the story as I understand it is Isle of McConan wrote this song with Lil Peep. I'll explain who X is in a second, but um, Isle of McConan, another rapper, wrote this song with Lil Peep, falling, um, or it was called something else. 
uh, the version on your skin. Yeah, that's the version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sunlight on your skin, and then after Lil Peep's death, uh, X like reached out to I Love McConan and like asked to be like on the song, and that's how Falling Down came to be. Um, And the reason why this fucking sucks is because. Basically, after Falling Down got released, because it was like one of the first things that one of the first songs that was released from this like upcoming album. It's not on the actual base album. It's like on the bonus version, which is like the first one you have on Spotify anyway. In in 2018, it's on the album. Yeah. Right. Like major labels are going to major label for sure. A hundred percent. And X is extension is uh, extension was was killed last year. But only after having spent a lot of time both growing in stature also by making sad hip-hop music, by making songs, often dealing with things like mental health and and personal anguish, and also being like a raging homophobe, uh, an abuser, um, yeah. like a violent abuser to a partner of his, um, and just generally an asshole in a way, in ways that peep had spoken out against in in ge- in a more general sense. Right. right, which showed in, like, the reception of, like, people that were close to Peep to the song being released. I know that a lot of Goth Boy Click, which I think most of these tweets have since been deleted, but, like, when the first sort of... Uh, when the song first came out, a lot of members of Goth Boy Click were like, Peep never would have wanted this. Like He, like, like literally went out of his way to remove... So, like, yeah. uh, it's 2018, which means Spotify playlists are an important thing and so like peep went out of his way to remove x from spotify playlists that were like if you like little peep listen to blank and yeah like, get that shit out of there here's money get it out of there yeah so uh, like peep a- as someone who was like openly bisexual um and and like you know such like a positive person when it came to like encouraging like people to identify the way that they wanted to identify and in in like terms of like the way that he felt about like his image like he always like had like it just it's so incongruous to like who Lil Peep was to have like this be the number one it it like feels it's like infuriating to and also it's the result of two grieving mothers talking to each other and like that ends yeah. up complicating it in this other way yeah and I think it's probably one of the most complicating things about the whole final come over your part two, which is like a lot of these songs are about death. A lot of these songs are about drug use. A lot of yeah. these songs are about many of the factors that would eventually contribute to Peep's death in yeah. a way that are. And I don't mean that in a, they're not glorifying of that stuff. Yeah. But they are there. It can be hard to but listen to someone say like, oh, I'm going to die. Yeah, for sure. I'm definitely going to die. I want to die in some ways. I'm I'm a self, I'm in a self-destructive place knowing how that story turns out. Yeah, you know, but it, there's the one there's one lyric I can't remember um, which song, but he talks about waking up surprised that he was alive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was trying to die last night. Like that's that's just so brutal to hear. In like, I think that his career was built around lyrics like that. Like that's something that has always drawn me to his music. Um, that uh, he 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 represented almost like a stubbornness to continue mm-hmm. to like push past totally. all the shit. But something I was curious about when I was listening to some of the stuff is that, like, a couple things that jumped out at me when I was listening to 
well, in White Wine, it's coming out of Little Tracy's mouth, uh, but it's also coming out of Peeps and in Beamer Boy, which are these kind of notes of like, I don't know, it's almost sardonic or maybe even a little bit resentful that like there's this public performance of like pain mm-hmm. and rawness that like in a couple of these passages feels very much like this is a this is an act that people can't qu- that people will not let peep quit like uh in beamer boy you know there's the uh they don't want to hear that they want that real shit they want that drug talk that i can't feel shit that is like that that is extremely like the frustration of the public persona being something you can't put down when it doesn't feel right like that's which is so funny in the context of beamer boy because that was like one of his first huge songs (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) like that he was maybe already a little bit sick of it then is (laughs) kind of funny I mean, it seems like a thing that is easy to get sick of when, I mean, if you trace it through the music, what you see is a lot of that is a reaction. A lot of it is a reaction to just like things that are common for a lot of people, like mm-hmm. general depression and uh, feelings of isolation and alienation and not knowing who you are because you're a young person and like an mm-hmm. experimentation. And like there's plenty of space for for these things in anyone's life. Um, but a lot of it did also come from this place of like, I don't know where I fit in in the world. I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I'm struggling to figure out who I am. And by the time you make Beamer Boy, you know, it, I, he had found success to some degree, you know, in, in like the online space sure, yeah. and had figured out like, oh, I like making music a lot. I'm working with people who I like to work with. And so, like, I'm not saying that those things are a remedy for depression or, or for drug abuse or anything like that. But to some degree, like, part of the cause had been addressed through him finding this amazing creative outlet. And so I can imagine immediately being like, oh, fuck, but they still want that real shit. Like, I can totally respond to that. Uh, like, I get it. Yeah. Yeah, it probably gets a little old having to talk about your suicidal ideation a hundred <laughs> yeah, times. Right? You know, like, in every every tour you go on, like, you have to talk about this thing that is, like, came from a very real, very raw place. Mm-hmm. But also, now you have to talk about it all the time. You have yeah, to put that out there all the time. This is, you know, yeah. Tracy but, is right. I can't, fuck you f- I can't fuck with you if we weren't friends on MySpace. <laughs> yeah. You know? Aww. But I... <laughs> also, but when I, I think... get a castle, won't let no one inside. Like, oh man, yep. do I, does that resonate? <laughs> Sorry, I so cut good. you off. I just had to. I love that line so much. No, it's so good. It's, it's really, really good. good. Tracy's so interesting. Did you know that his dad is Ishmael Butler from, yes! from Diggable Planets? From Diggable Planets and, and, and yeah. Shabazz Palaces. Yes, like so. He comes up. Tracy comes up through this musical heritage. Runs away from home. Starts making hip hop music. Starts making rap music. Meets up with Little Peep, and I think the two of them have this just like. I, I like there are YouTube collections there's like every little peep X little Tracy's song. Please just go listen to their entire oove together because the two of them bring out the best in each other. And I think Tracy's still gonna have an incredible career going forward. Yeah. I think we're gonna see a dip for the next like two years and he's gonna release something that's really in- incredible. Well, have you heard Like a Farmer that came out? This- I did I did hear Like a Farmer. <laughs> I I did hear What was that reaction? <laughs> yeah, you know. Um You should check it out. Is all yeah. I'll say. Right. yeah, you should you should check it out. Well like it's yeah, it's very funny. Because it, it's a very <laughs> funny song. Sorry. No, because he also just did a track with Riff Raff, who, who is in lots of legal trouble right now for fucking fuck off Riff Raff right now. But, um, but yeah, Tracy is an interesting figure, and I think that entire this entire sound has been such an interesting thing. This entire like specifically at that, that at that point, Goth, goth Boy Click, but in general, the kind of like emo rap movement is such an interesting thing because of the crossover it's allowing for black artists. And so one of the things I hope that doesn't get lost inside of talking about 
uh, Peep and Peep's death is that there are lots of great black artists in this space also. And obviously a lot of them have crossed over at yeah. this point. I right? mean, Juice World, Yeah. Doing like basically – Juice World Future is like – a crossover I didn't think could happen right. five years or two years ago. You know what I mean? Not five years ago. I don't know who the fuck Juice World was it's, five years it ago. Is, it is really hard to think about, though. That I think that – so Juice World is another rapper in kind of working in a very similar sound who had a top ten hit this year. Like part of me is like good for Juice World, like good for him being on a mixtape with Future. But it's like, oh, man, that really sh- should have been Peep, you yeah. know? Like Peep was growing up listening to Future too. Like yeah. that should have – I also like Peep way more than Juice World, so I Tom Bryan uh, at Stereo Gum, like like longtime rap critic at many different places, said that uh, um, <laughs> Juice World was is the Macklemore to to Peep's uh, atmosphere. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Wow. <laughs> it's a very cool. Yeah. People people who love Minnesota based hip hop yeah. will get that one. Anyway. All right. Um. I guess what, what, like real quick before we wrap up, uh, just any favorite albums off? Uh, sorry, any favorite tracks off "Come Over When You're Sober" Part Two? Just as as we close out here, what, what's your what's your essential track off this album? I mean, I think look at a track list. I think for me, it's probably "Life Is Beautiful," just yeah. because it. I mean, if this if we're to assume that this project is kind of like the the vision for what Peep would have been. Mm-hmm. Um, that song is is it, you know? Like that's the that's the that's the stadium anthem that he's playing for the encore, I think. You yeah. Know? I can see that. Um I really like Sex with My yep, Ex that's me. a lot. Uh it's just uh so one, it's the thing that feels like the most old peep. Yeah. Uh by far. Two, the hook is just deeply infectious. Uh he Sex with my ex is like the most corny simple line when he delivers it it's it's he feels it he really does and he makes me feel it he really does um i also have a least favorite song mm. i'm gonna say that uh and that is hate me um the which comes right after life is beautiful it feels like you someone went i this is a diss this is too mm. it sounds like you went on YouTube and searched DJ Khaled type beat. Oh. <laughs> uh, and it is like, that is what it, that is like, I think lyrically it's fine, but I think like as a song, it's a lot of grasping for what is the next big step in this yeah. in this artist's sound. Sure. And it could go in that direction or it could go in the Life is Beautiful direction. Life is Beautiful is just much stronger. Yeah. Danielle, do you have a favorite? I So I came to Peep very late, like, during this, and also I was exposed a tiny, tiny bit on the day of his death by Austin in this room, feeling sad, and I felt it too. I think I am now sort of a, a fan. I'm like a fledgling fan because I was just sitting at my desk listening to a bunch of this music, like almost crying, just feeling like, wow, this is amazing and good, and how did I not know about this, and holy shit. Um, I, I probably like default to Life is Beautiful just because, again, I, I'm so new to this, and that does feel like what this is or what this is going to be or what this is sort of like was working towards that evolution of. But I, I want to I wanna revisit Peep. I definitely want to revisit Peep in a, in a future waypoint because I feel like now I will go down this rabbit hole. This is a very, this is just like Elliot Smith kind of situation where I only mm. found out about this artist really uh, after their death and that makes me very sad and that's a shitty thing, uh, I think. So 
Like Elliot yeah. Smith, well, there will be an entire generation of people inspired <laughs> by Little Peep, probably. Probably, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, I think the sad reality is that it's also going to be, it's going to be more specifically people inspired by X, unfortunately. You're probably right. Uh, That's sad. That's sad. Oh, man. <laughs> What's your favorite track on this? Um, Mine is Runaway, because mm. that's when I messaged you and was nice like, story. Austin, <laughs> something's happening. It <laughs> oh. <laughs> <That> did happen. <laughs> Something happened. I'm really sad and yeah. fucked up over Lil Peep right now. And it happened on the second song of the album. Um, yeah, Runaway is my favorite. And then Life is Beautiful, I guess, is the one that sticks in my head the most. Um, Sex with My Ex is also so fucking good. I love the sheer good. unabashed 211 of Sex with My Ex, by the way. Like, just <laughs> lyrically, musically, just the, like, you know, let's leave it all on the field. Uh, let's put it all out there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 100%. I, I do want to shout out to um, the other bonus track that's not the X one is the other version of that song yes. that he wrote with McConan, and I think that that song is incredible. I think that that's I think if that's that song the, had come out in June or in May, we would have heard it a million times. I think that now. that's the best of the whole the whole record, even though it's not properly like part yeah. of the track list. It's just like so got those hand claps, like, tender and and just like the best of both of what they did. Mm-hmm. Um, and for what it's worth, they were collaborating a ton at the time yeah. of Peep's death. Uh, by all considerations, they had a very intimate friendship um, and really understood each other. And Peep, like, super admired McConan as a songwriter. I think that they both work very, like, gut level, get a song out in five minutes sort of thing. So yeah. they just were they, – they recorded a ton of material that's still yet to come out. So this isn't I, – I, the you last... suspect you'll see some, we'll get yeah. some Conan peep stuff. Yeah. When, like, in the interviews, like, just before uh, Little Peep passed, he talks about, like, an album with McConan coming out. Like, it seems like there is just um, a lot of material that they were putting together. And they just seem to be so happy to be working together at that point, too, which is just, man. <laughs> My last, like, favorite thing about, not favorite thing, this isn't right. Uh, the last thing that I think about a lot is. Uh, regarding a lot of this is when peep when like white wine hit one of the things that people did immediately was put that song and some other songs that that other peep songs that had sampled microphones and mount erie in front of phil elverham who is uh the the you know is mount erie is 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 the microphones um and at first phil's response had been this like really phil response of being like Get the shit out of my face. Yeah, it was like, oh, it's like, oh, you mean this kid that stole my songs? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then Peep died, obviously. And then Phil loses his wife um, and writes what I think is maybe one of the best records I've heard in the last, in in this phase of my life. Two of. <laughs> Two of, yeah. Acrylic to Me and Now Only, both incredible records. Um, did you listen to the live? People should listen to the live version. I still haven't done you, it. People should listen to the live version of both, but go, go listen to... Um, go listen to both A Crow Looked at Me and Now Only by uh, Mount Erie is I guess the name on the on the tin, right? Um, and uh, Phil has, you know, Little Peep died. And then I think a combination of those deaths f- f- forced this person who was this like consummate alternative independent musician who was making music not for the mainstream to reconsider what young people – where young people are and what music can do. Um, and there is something in the way 
seeing that much talent lost should affect us. And I think Phil is someone as a, as a musician who captures the loss of life really well. And it is weirdly important to me that he fucking walked that back. Do you know what I mean? Like that, like there was this moment of recognition of just like, fuck, like people dying sucks. And it doesn't matter if you're like people dying no matter what sucks. Um, But but there is something that brings it into focus when it's about someone who is so young and so has so much ability to touch other people and share something powerful. And I'm just happy that one of my favorite musicians walked back some bullshit about another one of my favorite musicians. I will leave on that. All right. Uh, We will take a break here before we dig into our other waypoint for this week. Uh, Quick note, this is actually a mega waypoint recording. So that's why we went really long on one segment. We've actually sort of, we had a too big show. Now we have content (laughs) for Thanksgiving week. So uh, you're welcome (laughs) listeners. Internet, uh, yeah, we're we're get and we also gave ourselves just a complete green light to really obsess over our favorites uh, this week. Yep. Uh, anyway, that's what we did. We're gonna take a quick break. Uh, you're probably gonna hear an ad, maybe not. Who can say? And uh, then we'll be back with some more music discussion. Planning for your next trip. Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. So uh, the other waypoint for this week is uh, PJ Harvey's Let England Shake, uh, which is an album from 2011. And it's also kind of my way of trying to get at some of the things that I've been sort of chewing over for the past week as a lot of countries around the world have been observing the centennial of Armistice Day, uh, which marks the end of World War I in 1918. And like I thought of... A lot of different things I could try to sort of put in front of y'all, but like this seemed like a good all-encompassing way to talk about like the Great War uh, and the way it's the way it's remembered and the way it's been observed, uh, as well as sort of the political moment in which these these observances have arrived. But I felt that Let England Shake is a really good point of entry to that because I've been listening to the album a little more lately. And uh, one of the thing that's really things that's really struck me is not just that it's a really powerful album about World War One and sort of the it trades a lot in the imagery uh, that we associate with uh, with with the war, but also it's a very what's the way to put this? Um, it is a very post-British Empire album mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. It's a very ex-Empire album. Uh, but it's sort of written in this interesting context of the entire album is conceived and written in a political moment when the Empire is sort of long dead. Uh, and yet the album positions itself and its narrators as people sort of speaking from almost the height of the Empire or the moments when it's just starting to come apart. And that sort of sort of 
got bound up in my head with just the way these things are being remembered and observed. Sort of the, this is an album also about sort of the self-deceptions and illusions. Oh, yeah. uh, That countries tell about themselves, particularly Britain told about itself. (laughs) Goddamn Europeans take me back to beautiful England starts the second song on this album and then paints a, a, a beautiful image of England, you know, from the gray to the gold of it, you know? Yeah. And there is in that depiction a sort of nationalism and for me it's, it was hard to separate out pj harvey playing characters in this space from pj harvey the song maker who was writing songs about england you know and important to note that she's english right yeah <laughs> in yeah, yeah, in yeah, all yeah, of yeah. this yes. which i and also this album came out like 7 years ago yeah. or something this isn't an album pre brexit pre brexit which is also important fair, here yeah but but well past um, you know, this wasn't in the middle of the 70s or something right. where England was still being very uh, – I'm not going to talk about what England's colonial policies are now. <laughs> I'm not smart enough. I don't know enough about them, but their current situations. Well, but the album is definitely being written in reaction to the complete demolishing of the public reputations of anyone who's involved in the Iraq and Afghanistan efforts. Sure. Yes. Uh, sure. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. the interesting thing is when this album came out, you'll you read a lot of reviews uh, that were sort of contemporary with its release, reading it very much as, well, so we're, it's an album about World War One, but really it's also about uh, mm-hmm. Afghanistan and Iraq. And th- there's some fairness in that. Like, you can't separate the modern geopolitical landscape from World War One. It, it just cannot be done. Uh, particularly with regard to the Middle East. But also I think that does tend to maybe give a little bit short shrift to (laughs) the way this is specifically about, uh, you know, the the First World War and the the things that that Britons told themselves about it, uh, both at Mm -hmm. the time and in popular memory of the war. Uh, So, yeah, I'm just curious... um, if you all had a chance to listen to it and, and and what what you sort of made of it, uh, I it, it's something that I remember listening to when it came out, and I ha- haven't revisited it a ton since then because um, I think the it just was so wasn't what I was used to from PJ Harvey. Like that's that's not, interesting. It, she 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 is hadn't traditionally been a political songwriter until that moment. Um, there's this like interview from uh, the enemy that got from, from the early nineties that got quoted a ton when this record came out where she was like, um, she was like, I haven't been political in my music, but I'm going to have to change that soon. And it still took her another 20 years to, <laughs> to, to do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, I, I love her as like kind of uh stoner mystic romantic songwriter and that that's the context in which i was like familiar with her when this record came out so the idea of like an intense dissection of war was just so like out of my idea of what pj harvey could be that see that's that's funny because because i didn't know pj harvey very well at all like this album was kind of my my point of entry to, to her work so I go back and I listen to her earlier work, and it's informed by uh, Let England Shake. And so I look at uh, White Chalk, for instance, and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, I can draw that line really easily. Sure. Uh, but then, like, there's a track that you sort of uh, passed to us when, when we were talking the other day about you coming on the show. And I listen to that, and I'm like, okay, that's a completely different act. That, like, that's just a completely different oh, yeah. act. Oh, th- yeah. Th- 
there's this song reeling from from a she she released a collection of four track demos and it's it's like my favorite thing of hers as like the abstract songwriter it's like the opening lines are like I want to bathe in milk eat dra- eat grapes Robert De Niro sit on my face that's like about <laughs> as far from Let England Shake as you can get I yeah, think yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's you know that's about colonial politics <laughs> sure yeah you know in a way there uh, there's certainly a lot of evocative imagery involved <laughs> involved yeah. um i mean I, and i guess i'll say this is that like for me the the thing that felt so uh, this is like this isn't a take this is a description of the text this isn't subtext but like so much of this felt like reading the poetry written about that war mm-hmm. by people in that war in terms of the laborious um and and uh careful descriptions of physical physicality of um, smoke and ground and like the earth itself and things dripping and things, you know, uh, uh, tanks rolling across fields. And there's a description of that stuff that is that is not fetishizing it in any way, but is in fact like the terror of it all, but mixed in with the sort of sensual description of nature that marks so much of the poetry that came out of World War One, um, And that that's kind of what I knew I was getting into, but I didn't expect to be impressed by it, and I was. I think that like there's a lot of there are a lot of tracks here that uh, where her her lyrics are very specific and and bring you to a specific place and time, which to me does contribute to the feeling that this is, a, as Rob said, like an album about World War One specifically and not just generally. the The wars in in Iraq and Afghanistan are are, you know, there are there are truths about war. In a general sense, there are ways to have a politics, a political feeling about war in a general sense. But the First World War, its causes, the way it was fought, and the and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, their causes and how they were fought are distinct in specific ways. And I, I am personally glad that though those things, the moments when she feet when she is being very specific, do tend to feel specific to World War One. Otherwise, I think I would actually really despise this this record, um, f- because it would wash the hands of so many misdeeds in our more recent wars. You know, yeah, creating some sort of like universality to it, to like war. Uh, we're all fighting, like you know, yeah. We're all bad animals. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that one of the things that struck me on revisiting, though, um, that that I think does link it to her past songwriting is that this record is like deceptively really funny, mm. um, which is something that is is true through all of her music. Like, no, kind of no matter what she's doing, there's just the, these like sly moments, like. Um, like the uh, the I want to take my problem to the United Nation, calling back to summertime blues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah, I totally. just I just think that that's such like a clever thing. And then the I'm sure that you'll want to talk about this in a in a in a more pointed way, Rob. But the video you linked of the performance um, on the British late night show, where it starts with uh, the sample of Istanbul, not Constantinople. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and she's just like she's really funny, and she finds a way to make like like really heavy shit like. It's. I. Th- I think that this this record can be viewed as like a dark comedy in a way. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's that's a thread that runs through a lot of World War One memoirs and a lot of the poetry. Again, that's a lot of the poets she's channeling. Uh, there, you know, there are poets who sort of trade in the imagery of, and a lot, like a lot of times it's the same poet uh, doing doing both. Right? Like there's um. There, there are poems that are describing the, the horrors of trench life, but then there are also poems that are really about 
just like these little vignettes uh, into the war. I'm trying to find... Okay, yeah, so I, I'm glad I linked this. Uh, so Siegfried Sassoon's uh, The General uh, is, is a good example because basically it's just this, this brief image of one of those like very bluff, uh, hail and well-met type general officers, popular with the troops, uh, just giving everyone a good pep talk as they march off to the lines. And, uh, you know, it, it ends with... Um, one of the soldiers in the poem saying, He's a cheery old card, grunted Harry to Jack as they slogged up to Eris with rifle and pack. But he did for them both by his plan of attack. And like it's it's this <laughs> like it's this like pitch black aside, right? These two soldiers being led to the slaughter. And they kind of like the the you know charming fellow who sort of architected uh th- this entire shit show. And I think that's something that uh you know the the album's playing with well. Yeah, it's so, I think it speaks to kind of like when I think, when I first listened to this album, I just thought it was like like folk music, but for like, but like the, the kind of songs that you sing when you're in the war. Do you know what I mean? Like the yes. songs that you sing like with with your with your troops or the songs that you sing like, you know, in waiting or whatever where they're they're composed of like moments and like descriptions and scenes and stuff like that that are just like super expanded and like moments that are like made legend almost um was like my sort of reading of this yeah a thing i couldn't quite get out of my head and i think this is one of the things i really love about this album is it sounds like it is informed by the type of music soldiers going off to that war would have listened to. Like it does have sort of it like the music does sort of harken back to traditional tunes, folk tunes, uh, country ballads, stuff like that. But also it's got this very like bitter rock inflected modern edge, which I think sort of taps into like the rage. Some of these, like some of the war poets start to articulate toward the end of their experience. But there was no musical culture that could really articulate that or put, you know what I mean? Or, or put it into any kind of like raw un- unfiltered form. And I think let England shake starts to do that a little bit. Like, right. Like, like what would, what would Wilfred, what would Wilfred Owens punk band have sounded like possibly a little <laughs> bit like this. Um, and I think that's one of the, the, the cool things about this album. Um, I think the, the other thing that, I, that, I, that, I've sort of been turning over with with this album, uh, and and it speaks to the, that sort of debut of Let England Shake on that on that late night show where she does this. Uh, yeah, it's a really darkly comic moment, right? You've got Gordon Brown there, uh, sort of presiding over the growing wreckage of uh, of new labor and the fallout from the Iraq War, and she opens with this song. And not just the, the not just as it appears on the track, but it, it is over that you know not Istanbul, not uh, not Istanbul Constantinople uh, song. What what is it? What's the original of that? What is that sample? Is it that might be Giants? Is it a uh, no? They do they do a famous cover of it. Okay. But I'm not sure who the original <laughs> composer is. Um, something that stuck stuck out to me is that it, it's also a deliberately out of key sample that that she uses <laughs> mm-hmm. she starts playing the song on an on auto harp i think and it just totally clashes with the sample and just keeps the sample riding throughout the whole track mm-hmm. so it's just like this like 
comedy chaos, like really just like really dark and weird. And Gord like, Brown's right like, there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yep. Yeah. And, and good. <laughs> and so I think the other the other aspect of, aspect of this I find fascinating is that um. So World War One, and I think this is one reason why the centennial hasn't been particularly. It hasn't had anywhere near the cultural impact that like World War II's 50th anniversary has had, right? And part of that is the veterans are gone. Uh, World War II, they were still, uh, when the 50th anniversaries rolled around, they were still among us. But I think there's also a very real aspect of World War I does not serve a lot of people's agendas to memorialize <laughs> or think about. Um, because for a lot of the powers involved, it's a complete catastrophe, right? Like the, the war's enduring images aren't redemptive. Uh, they're, they're sort of images of, of mass slaughter. Um, and so it's interesting to me to consider like, how is this war being recalled and what messages are, tr are people trying to draw from it, uh, at the, at the time of this observance? Like I was really struck last week by, um, God, just all the people you'd expect giving massive props to this ridiculous Macron speech about how nationalism is a betrayal of patriotism. Uh, and it's just this it's it's this eye rolling like attempt to draw a distinction between like na like nationalist extremism uh, and good patriotism, which he doesn't really articulate because the line no. the line it's not, there isn't a line. There's a continuum. <laughs> uh, and it's a lot more complicated than that. But it's it's this attempt to uh, instrumentalize the, these memories, and a lot in a lot of cases, it's the people sort of charged with these observances are also people who are representing this like steadily weakening neoliberal world order. And I think one of the things that I think about uh, with this conflict, and then it, it sort of comes up in the album with the. Uh, what if I take my problems to the United Nations line is there, there's this, there's this tendency to view the, uh, view the war as a tragedy of there not being strong enough international institutions. Uh, and there's, there's a case to be made there, but there's also a tendency for the people making those arguments to also being like interventionists when it comes to foreign policy, you know what I mean? Like they tend to be, they, yeah. they tend to be very like pro humanitarian intervention. Uh, they tend to be very pro, uh, you know, things, things like NATO and, and such. And so that's the other thing I tend to hear when I listen to this album is a deep skepticism uh, that these institutions are necessarily going to actually help or solve any of the problems that the speakers of this album like our experience, mm, yeah. right? That the people who suffer from these policies are kind of left on their own. And the people in charge chart their own course. That's one of the things I hear when I listen to this. Yeah. Can I ask you, Rob, yeah. as, as someone who who has has studied and thought about World War One, I, I suspect more than certainly many of us and likely many more than many people, uh, you know, in terms of pure percentages. Uh, for many reasons, for many of the reasons you just described, um, what what should the takeaway be for us in 2018 when thinking about the centennial of Armistice Day? And and maybe should is too strong. I don't want there to be an obligation. I guess more of what is yours and and 
what is a productive way of framing that conflict in an era when one most conflicts that occur are not similar. Most armed violent conflicts between nations are not similar in nature, both in cause and in execution um, and, in, and in what the arms look like, frankly, and what warfare looks like now. Um, and also in a world that – in which that sort of symmetrical warfare between like countries has been reduced to nil and the bulk of – Armed con or it's not has been not been reduced to nil, but f for us speaking in the West, countries like ours are rarely fighting against other countries armed the way ours are, and and the warfare has become a much more asymmetrical thing um, that maybe has pockets of like to like warfare, like to white like skirmishes, skirmishes with small arms or whatever, but but a world in which you know the arms race was won by certain nations, and then we put in place a political scheme to make sure that those – that the very highest end of arm is only available to us. Um, how do we – how do we think about a war like the First World War, the Great War now, a century in? Um, Small ask, yeah. I know. <laughs> Simple question. Yeah. There's a lot of things I – like one of the reasons I think I find this war so fascinating is because it's a war where everybody basically gets it profoundly wrong. Um. And people blunder into it to a large extent, and then they really have no idea what to do with it once it started. Uh, I mean, one of the things I bear in mind is that there was a similar sort of complacency, I think, in the world uh, leading into World War One. Mm. Like you'd had the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, but like for the, for the most part, like nations, there hadn't been a full-scale war between great powers. Uh, involving like, mass mobilization since like Napoleon, really like this was again like I, like I think you could easily find people in like 1910 or so saying like well you know those days are gone uh, you know obviously most wars now are uh, frontier wars colonial wars uh, they're they're deeply asymmetrical uh, and so I think there there are some parallels between that world and our own that political moment. And, and our own. I think there's also something I, I return to a lot is there's, I think one of the other reasons this war tends to be regarded as a tragedy, uh, like for instance, Niall Ferguson sort of popularized this view shortly before. Uh, that's, that's back when he wrote history as opposed to try to, you know, uh, conduct uh -huh. vendettas against his grad students. <laughs> um, uh. But it sort of had this view that the tragedy of World War One is that it's the West turning on itself. That it's it's the West being distracted from its like civilizing mission and its its great success. Uh, it's sort of basically dominating the globe uh, in uh, you know in the late eighteen hundreds and the nineteen hundreds. And I think it's also worth bearing in mind. And I think that the album even sort of. Uh, sort of refers to this a little bit when it samples uh, Blood and Fire, uh, which is a, a reggae song by uh, Niney. And it's the, the hook, the, one of the recurring lines there is, uh, let it burn, let it burn. Uh, and I think a thing worth bearing in mind here is that a lot of the major combatants tend to re regard the war as a tragedy because they, they suffered unimaginable losses but also many of them came out unimaginably weakened. 
And for a lot of other people, World War I also accelerates decolonization. You know, it begins to put cracks hmm. in a lot of imperial facades. Mm -hmm. And that's another element worth considering here as well. We tend to we tend to view it as uh, this shattered the the bonds of uh, international internationalism and brotherhood that was starting to crop up across the West, across Europe. It also shattered uh, a lot of the engines that sustained really brutal uh, colonial regimes and started to accelerate their decline. Uh, so that's that's the other that's the other thing to to bear in mind is that. The speaker, a lot of the speakers in Let England Shake, I think, tend to have this very green and pleasant land view of England <laughs> without any yeah, reference. They sure do. <laughs> yeah, without any reference to the global empire that that lifestyle is built on. Yeah. That's, that is, that was like for me one of the big tensions. And it's one of my big tensions whenever I go back to, I mean, it's one of my big tensions whenever I go back to anything from an entire – from centuries and centuries of time produced by the West uh, because so much of it, it you know, has – turns a blind eye to what built these those spaces and those fortunes. I mean we're going to talk about the Ballad of Black Tom next week in the next Waypoint episode, which I think tries in some space – in some way to confront the history of Western violence. Um <laughs> A, I mean, look at look ahead. at the Hobbit. Like, look at Bilbo. Like, the right, Shire yeah. is England, yeah. and it's all it's all just these little goodies and snacks. Oh, the Hobbits—they just love to yeah. to have their little jams, their little teas, their little cakes, all their little comforts, and their second breakfast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, eleven Z's, all that. And throughout it, there's this the, the image it's portraying is of an entire like way of life where every little like daily luxury and indulgence was probably in some way inflected by imperialism and oh, yet yeah. In, yeah. in the magical world of middle earth and 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 you know tolkien's uh you know can be problematic but he's also he, he's also a, a smart guy but even in this conception he's still like yeah but the shire really is isolated like the mm -hmm. like they really can they're really not connected to the world around them and it's only a moral the argument that connects it to connects them to it it's a it's a feeling that these things will reach you too someday not that actually there's a lot of things we take for granted that depend on the state of the world. Well, and like I think so for me, this is like one of my favorite topics to think about is is how did the people of in the moment of modernization begin to think about the past, begin to create the other um, and be and think about their, their present day and whether or not it was lost already. Um, uh, for me, I, so like there are there are there's this moment in England in at the turn of the century in you know the the early 1900s when media scholarship first began uh you know for a long time scholarship you didn't study popular music you didn't study popular culture um of any kind because it was low and to study something meant to study greatness and greatness was associated with the classics was associated with with latin and and with uh you know the greek tragedy and with uh, the the great histories and and you know maybe maybe you were allowed to study the you know other distant foreign cultures but only because they were other and distant and foreign and you could frame them as such and take something from them um, but you know with the rise of what we think of as mass culture through technological means we end up having these people who suddenly go looking for a 
a past that wasn't there. Um, for me, my, the two that I go back to the most are there were there were uh, a pair of um, I guess I would call them academics, uh, the Levises, L-E-A-V-I-S, who do all of this writing uh, about how terrible mass culture is, that it's an imitation of true culture, that it is um, that it is you know uh, uh, distorting the public and corrupting the youth and all this fast music and candy. I've met these people, I think. Yeah, probably <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Every every generation has these people. Yeah. And what they pointed back to was this very Hobbit-like past of England. Oh, what we need is a return to the old pop culture, to folk culture, when we all gathered at night and we had a a little a little uh, a guitar and we played songs together and we sang about how great the country was and how beautiful the green was and we all had well you know maybe we should go back to having a shared garden but maybe that's about as far as we should ever we shouldn't get rid of the aristocracy in fact maybe we could have a little bit more aristocracy things are a little bit better then um, and those people were inventing something that never existed right that like folk culture in that hobbit sense never existed. The the and, and I think maybe Tolkien is actually more honest about mm-hmm. it than than many real uh nostalgic having uh, nostalgia having uh, uh conservatives and reactionaries have been, which is at least in Tolkien's Hobbiton, people are cruel to each yeah. other and are bickering and are backstabbing and are and are 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 constantly in this very human, right? Um but for me, like that question, how are you imagining your place in the world and how are you imagining the past that brought you here is one of the most important ones that we can contend with as cultural critics. Um, and it's one that's so easy to fuck up because especially as you get older, there are moments. It's one of the reasons why when you send me someone like Little Peep, my first reaction is not fuck off. It's Fuck off! This is kind of dope. Yeah, uh, um, <laughs> because like there is, there is. I think we always have to contend with our place in the present, and with our the ways in which we mythologize the past, because that's always towards something. There's always like an end goal there, whether or not it's a conscious one. And so for me, like this is like as someone who listens to hip hop with Little Peep, it's like. I need to be careful not to become the old head who is like, no, rap music is about X, Y, Z thing. Um, even though at the same time, I want to be conscious of like appropriation and about who gets paid for the for the labor of many people before that. And it's when, when I listen to an album like Let England Shake, I really like it. But there are moments when it slips into when I lose the sense that there is a moment of remove there where the descriptions of England become so – almost lurid uh, in their beauty that I feel like I'm being peddled something that I can never actually get behind because it would never – one, because it never existed and two, because it would never have been mine. It's I, – I think that relevant to this is that PJ Harvey's next album was five years later uh, – the Hope Six Demolition Project is, I think, the name of it. Do you guys are you no, guys I'm not familiar, familiar with that? At all, please. So I've heard it referred to by people as "Let America Shake." <laughs> <laughs> um, she like did some traveling to Afghanistan and I think Kosovo and then to DC, and it had some missteps to say the least. Oh, really? Um, she took a lot of heat from uh, some activists in DC for the way that she portrayed DC specifically like there's this there's this one song um I can't remember but it got a ton of press if you just like google anything about this record she like refers to like a place in 
DC as as like a drug town and uses the phrase like oh. zombies referring to like the homeless population and right, stuff like that. Right. And it's like for all that she gets right on Let England Shake, just like not having the the perspective yeah. um to and knowledge to do the same thing here. Well, there's and I think this is <laughs> it's weird. We're gonna talk about this later today. Uh but you're gonna uh-huh. hear it in a week. It is easy <laughs> when you're talking about uh, places to fall into stereotyping, even if you know them well, even if you grew up there and lived there. This is what we're talking about with um, Laval's uh, Ballad of Black Tom. He gives an interview where he where he talks about uh, in one of his earlier works, he had friends from his old neighborhood reach out to him years later and were like, you know, it's a good book, but wasn't as bad as you make out, man. Like, you know, like, <laughs> we also just lived there. We had happy like, times. Yeah, we were, like, yeah. We were okay. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's that's easy to slip into, even when you know a place really, really well. Um, definitely, <laughs> definitely easier and more problematic to do when you're a uh, you know white, white artist from England parachuting into different different parts of the world, being like, I need to shake people from their complacency and paint the most dire <laughs> yeah. fucking portrait of your lives. So what I think what she ultimately ended up saying was that she was trying to quote a Washington Post reporter who had given her a tour of DC uh-huh. but it but still it's like in the listening that maybe doesn't come through yeah <laughs> yeah and I, th- I think that there's still stuff of value on that record but they're just like the, the the things that you're talking about like starting to see in let England shake just become a lot more transparent right. on mm. the next record. It's fascinating. Like, I I have like such a minimal PJ Harvey history. Like I've heard a couple of tracks here and there, but I never dug into the discography. And this is the first time that I did that in any way. So I appreciate the addition to to the bank of knowledge. Her '90s records are like absolutely essential. I'm dig back. Dry and rid of me are like all time greats. All right. Yeah. All right. Got to do some PJ backlogging for sure. Uh, and that will do it for where the hell's oh, Patrick? Get out of the document. God damn it. <laughs> I'm, t- I'm trying to get up to my outro and it just keeps dropping down further down the document because Patrick's in there Patrick's like adding notes editing, for the next which episode which is good good for Patrick but at the same time uh, Patrick not now uh, anyway that'll do it for uh, this week's waypoints our thanks to 2Mellow for the track Slide Asleep off the album After Midnight you can find that at 2MellowMakes.BandCamp.com and you can keep up with all of us at Waypoint.Vice.com uh, I'm Rob Zachney, and you can find me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Uh, Colin, where can people find you and keep up with your work? Uh, I'm on Twitter at outasightouta and uh, noisy.com. That's How many T's are in your outa? Are you two T's? Two or... T's. Two T's. Like the there's a there's a Wilco song. Gotcha. I, I made my Twitter when I was really into Wilco in <laughs> high school, like like freshman year of high school. Perfect. Aww. Um, we all do things in yeah. the world. Do you disavow Wilco uh, yeah. now, or do you just disavow being that into Wilco? I think I think I disavow being into anything enough to make it my handle on <laughs> yeah on the internet. That's... I wish I'd just used my name. Had I known I was going to be a professional anything, I probably would have done something different. Oh. It's also S I T E, yeah, yeah. S I G H T. Yeah, sorry, it's confusing. <laughs> I, I regret it every time. I want people to be able to follow your work because you do great work. And people a... should go read your piece on Little Peep uh, over at Noisy. Dot com. Yep, noisy.com. Um, y'all have dot com. Yeah, so we, we, we locked up. We locked down. You can also go to noisy.vice.com, but. Oh, no, fuck that. <laughs> I'm trying to go to noisy.com. <laughs> That's all I'll say about that. Yeah. <laughs> all uh, right. Daniel, where can people find you? 
You can find me at Danielle or I on Twitter. Austin. Austin underscore Walker on Twitter. And Natalie. At Natalie Watson on Twitter. All right. Well, we hope you've enjoyed the break. We'll be back again with uh, Waypoint Radio later this week. We might also have a movie podcast uh, hitting up this week. I've lost track a little bit of... Which purge is this? Is this uh, election day? No, election no, no. Four. Election year. This will be election oh. year. Yeah, next yeah. week we'll also have Purge, the oh. first Purge. The first Purge, which is the fourth Purge movie. The fourth movie. Purge movie. Yes. Stick around Free for that one. Show. If, if you find yourself getting demoralized by election year... I would say, like, yeah. stick around for, for the first Purge. The first Purge. Yes. Uh, yeah, if you but were listen like, to both of our podcasts. Yeah, definitely no matter what. <laughs> listen to both, for sure. You, you can watch Election Year. You should, and then listen to us talk about it, because we have thoughts. But then really listen to the first, or watch the first Purge. Yeah. And you should watch them all. Sorry. <laughs> you should. Watch, yeah. watch them all. Well, we've been doing <laughs> we a did. rewatch. We've been doing a rewatch, which has been really fun. So, Awesome. All right. right. Oh, and then, I mean, next week, we can say what our next week waypoints are for once. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So people can be really prepared. Uh, So next week, uh, we are going to be looking at the latest season of Channel Zero, uh, The Dream Door. The Dream Door. And we're also going to be sort of, I think, probably putting a period on our uh, era of Lovecraft reconsideration uh, by reading (laughs) The Ballad of Black Tom by Victor Laval. Uh, which I just finished and thought was pretty fantastic and a really interesting uh, alternate view of Lovecraft stereotypes and tropes. If you really want to go deep, you can also force yourself to read um, The Horror at Red Hook or at least read – there's a there's a Tor.com, um, uh, like, we read it so you didn't have to style uh, post called um, – fuck, where'd it go? Uh, here it is. It's the horror at Red Hook, Lovecraft's most bigoted story. No, really, uh, and it's written. It's a piece written by a couple of people Yikes. who who yeah. adds some commentary to why it is that. And uh, Laval's work is is explicitly a rewrite of that short story. And that short story is available for free. Like all of Lovecraft's stuff, you never have to pay anybody for it. It's all on Lovecraft dot whatever Lovecraft dot com. Lovecraft dot whatever is Lovecraft. my new website. Cthulhu. Uh, yeah, they they got that one. They locked that one up. We thought about waypoint.cthulhu, but we then we thought better of it. So Yeah. Um so yeah, that's next. Even week. Cthulhu gets redeemed a little bit at the end of Black Tom. Uh, spoilers. <laughs> Whoa. Alright, well, we hope you'll join us again for that. Uh, but until then, do not give in to astonishment. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.